0: week's episode of Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. I'm your host, Ron Campbell, and this week, as with every week, I want to start off by reminding you of the most important fact in the entire universe. Absolutely, God loves you. Now, last week, I actually started with these hiking boots on the table, and I was going to tell this story last week, and I ran out of time, and I thought, I'll just go ahead and roll this over to next week, because I think this might be a good place for us to begin. You know, last week... We started off by talking about the question of fine-tuning and Fred Hoyle's discovery as we looked at carbon production and how this intricate process was necessary across stars and the universe and all of these things that had to come together to produce the carbon, well, that ultimately makes up us. And how unlikely that was and what Hoyle had discovered as he was walking through this was this incredibly complex process that drives all of that. It got me to thinking, and it got me to considering how I wanted to approach this week's episode before we dig a little bit deeper into this question of fine-tuning, because it's easy to get lost in the numbers, and it's easy to kind of lose track of what we're looking at. And I I saw an old video that came up on my feed the other day of Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about religious people. He was addressing a group who I assume were scientists, and he was talking about, uh, he was really heaping a lot of grief on scientists who have not walked away from their faith in God, and a personal God. And it got me thinking that as we're taking this journey, at what point as the evidence begins to pile up for the fingerprint of God being visible, or a creator, let's say a creator, because we're a long ways away from establishing, if there is a creator, who that creator is. So, Let's, let me make sure I state this correctly. At what point when you face enough evidence, do you change direction? You know, these hiking boots are maybe one of the best examples of that in our family's life as, as we've come this far. About 10 years ago, I think maybe 8 to 10 years ago, we had gone on a hike up in the mountains. And to one of my favorite places, it's a, it's a beautiful lake that's about 5 miles from the parking lot. Gorgeous lake, beautiful trail, lots to do along the way. And at about the the two and a half mile mark, about halfway in, you reach one of the most beautiful alpine lakes you'll ever see. And as we reach that lake that just beautiful July morning, my youngest daughter, who is not a hiker in fairness to her, I'll throw that on the table, which is ironic because she's a cross-country runner and she's in the best shape of any of us. But as we reached this Alpine Lake at the halfway point, she began lobbying for us to turn around. Because really, she didn't want to be there anyway. And so she thought that was a really good place to turn around and go back into town and do something else more fun. And I vetoed that, and we kept going. Now at the end of that lake, you have a stream that, fro- that flows into the lake. And that stream is coming down from a glacier a mile or two up the canyon. Needless to say, it's a little chilly as the water comes in. My oldest daughter walked over to a large rock, this rock you can see in the picture, and she walks up and sits down on the edge of that rock. But as she dropped down to sit, she lost her balance and she started to fall forward. And with nothing to catch her, she dropped on that log that you can see just below the rock. Well, the problem is, water had been running across that log all summer long, and that log was just as slick as a sheet of ice. Her legs went out from underneath her, and she fell face first into that pool below the rock. And it was deeper than you might think it was. My heart just stopped, and I was about 20, 30 feet away from her, and I think I covered that distance as fast as I've ever covered any distance in my life. And I grabbed her by her pack and yanked her up out of the water. And thankfully, other than being drenched in ice-cold water, she was otherwise unharmed. Praise God. It was, it was a true blessing that she was safe. So I pulled her out, and we got her dried off as best we could. You know, you don't really have towels. You don't have all the things that you need in that situation. But we had an extra sweatshirt. We had some extra clothes. We had some jackets and things like that. And so we were able to get her dried off and get her into a dry sweatshirt. But at that point, the day is pretty much done. And much to my youngest daughter's pleasure, we decided to turn around and start heading the three miles back down to the car. And we start walking that way, and after about a mile, well, my wife's first hiking boot gives way. And as you can see, the damage was pretty catastrophic. It separated at the, at the heel, and all the way up to the toe, the, the glue gave way, the sole came off, and there was only about yay much of the boot hanging on. And at this point, we're all just in stunned disbelief. She's blown a flat tire here, basically, and there's nothing that we can do. But as every good hiker will tell you and every guy in his garage, I always carry a roll of duct tape with me in my backpack. Everybody should have one. Duct tape is the handyman's secret weapon for all situations. So I duct taped my wife into her boot and told her, I'll just cut you out of it. When we get to the parking lot, it'll be fine. And sure enough, it held up pretty well for the next half mile. And half a mile later, now a mile and a half from the parking lot, hiking boot number two gives way. And that one goes from the heel, but it only goes up about halfway. This one doesn't, you know, break apart quite as badly. And again, we duct tape my wife into her hiking boot and I told her, well, I'll cut you out of that one too when we get back. And at this point, we're just kind of shaking our heads going, what in the world is going on? And about a half mile down from there, one of the bite blocks on one of our water reservoirs gives way and it pops loose and starts spraying ice cold water down my back. I think at this point we all decided that our decision to go hiking that morning had perhaps been a bad one. My youngest daughter is laughing. She thinks it's great. And she starts teasing me because thanks a lot, dad. You know, we, we could have gone and done something fun in town. But instead, you've dragged us on what became known from that day going forward as the hike of death as everything that could have gone wrong, did. And we ended up the last mile, thankfully, was relatively uneventful. One more story I might tell you later. But otherwise, we made it back to the car unscathed and everything ended up being okay. At some point, you have to look at yourself and look in the mirror and say, am I really using good information to make decisions? Now, in this case, a couple of fluky things went wrong. The boots, you know, what are the odds of both boots breaking on the same day? Well, they're actually pretty good. You know, the boots were made in probably in the same factory, probably on the same day. The same glue, the same stock of materials and everything. And they both had walked the same number of miles. So both boots breaking on the same day is theoretically possible. It's unlikely, but it's probably happened to other people too. Falling face-first into a mountain, into a glacier-fed stream, that one's a little more difficult to probably put the odds on. And certainly the bite block coming off of one of our water reservoirs was extremely unlikely. All of that happening in one day does make you question a little bit the odds of what you're doing. Now, did it change our decision-making? No, because the odds, while unlikely, are not prohibitively so. But if a few more things had gone wrong, you'd have to step back and wonder, am am I not meant to be hiking? Am I not destined to do this? And that's the question I think we need to answer ourselves as we get ready to move forward. Let's pause for a minute, get rid of the hiking boots, and we'll continue. Okay, we're back. So, now that the hiking boots are back where they're supposed to be, I want to consider for a minute this question as we go forward. You know, I, I go back to Neil deGrasse Tyson's comments that I was watching on that old video clip. And it was amazing how he approached the situation. It's amazing how certain he was of atheism and how absolutely certain he was that the thinking person, the intelligent person, would clearly reject religion. It was, in essence, their duty to do so. And i was stunned by that. And I'm stunned by that for a very simple reason. What we're going to find at so many steps along this journey is that naturalism cannot put on the table a good or reasonable explanation how so many of these items have occurred. A couple weeks ago, we looked at this question of where did the universe come from? Well, the universe, and we, we again we narrowed it down to three things: either it has existed eternally, which scientifically is not a good choice. It jumped into existence on its own from nothing. So from nothing came everything. Again, scientifically, that is not a good theory. We have a lot of scientific reasons to believe that that's not likely. Logic and reason would also tell us that that's not a good that's that's not a good explanation. But an intelligent outside third party, while some people may not like it as an option, is the most reasonable and rational explanation available to us. That's a bold statement and I understand that. But again, most of the theories that we find that try to explain to us how the universe could have leapt into existence all on its own presume at some point to sneak something in that is helping the universe to jump into existence. You cannot use something to explain where something came from. When you're dealing with nothing you have to stick with the definition of nothing. And what we find are a lot of very interesting efforts scientifically to get around that. But those efforts generally revolve around two things. Either a universe that has existed for forever and therefore avoids the question of where did it come from. Or a universe that somehow snuck into existence all on its own from nothing. But those theories rarely stick to a true definition of nothing. Because even the most ardent naturalists have a hard time explaining how everything could come from nothing. So we had to grant naturalism an enormous stroke of luck. Cosmic luck is going to keep coming up over and over again in this journey that we take to get naturalism just off the starting line to move forward. What we're about to find when we look at fine-tuning in the universe, either the fine-tuning of the universe has been produced by an intelligent third party, that it is the fingerprint of intelligence, The fine tuning of the universe is this way because it it was necessarily, it had to be this way, it was necessarily this way. Or luck accounts for everything. And if you just give it enough chances, if you just give it enough opportunities, luck is gonna get you across the finish line. And over and over again, what we're going to find is naturalism has to rely on the shakiest possible answers to keep it going as we walk through this. And I don't just mean once or twice, naturalism and when eventually when we get to it many 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 steps from now darwinian evolution or neo-darwinian evolution however however we want to refer to the process cannot begin to explain some of the most important things that demand an explanation in this there has to be an answer to these questions the reason i wanted to stop and to talk about this today is not because neil degrasse tyson's video just struck me the wrong way but it struck me as important. At some point, each one of us needs to make a decision. Why are we here and what are we looking at? And as we make this journey, when you reach a point of looking at these things, and it requires miracle after miracle, and I am purposely using that word, to get naturalism over a hurdle that it can't possibly explain, then at what point do you step back? And you begin to question, is it possible that there is an intelligent third party that is responsible for these items? The sheer confidence that Neil deGrasse Tyson approaches these topics from, I I appreciate it and I understand that he is supremely confident in all of these things. And he seems like a genuinely nice guy. But I don't for a moment understand where that confidence comes from. And if pressed on this issue, I don't know that he could explain it. Because if we get to the point of using science again in the third person, well, if you just give science enough time, science will come up with an answer. There are so many times in this that we're going to see that, that original charge that was levied to Charles Darwin, that he really gave natural selection almost godlike powers. You'll hear it from Stephen Hawking. You'll certainly we've already seen it from Richard Dawkins. And this enormous confidence that if you just give science enough time, science will figure it out. The problem with that theory is fine tu- universal fine-tuning is not something that philosophers in 500 AD came up with. Universal fine-tuning is something that the atheist Fred Hoyle came up with in the 1950s when his scientific observations made him take a step back and say, my goodness, this couldn't possibly have happened on its own. That wasn't a religious statement. That was a scientific statement based on the facts that he was looking at and the mathematical impossibility of what he was observing. So as we look at these things, at some point, mathematics, I, I, again, I'm a numbers person, so this one is a, big, this is a big stop along the way for me because mathematically I understand the numbers that we're about to deal with are not unlikely. They are impossible. And so as we look at this and walk through it, this week we're going to deal with this question and we're going to deal with one item, just one of the dozens of fine-tuning items that are out there. We're going to talk about just one item and how remarkably unlikely it is. Now last week we dealt with one and that was Fred Hoyle's discoveries, again, as it relates to carbon and the processes that need to take place to generate carbon that generates us. As we look at that, As these start to pile up, we've already had to grant naturalism its first miracle to get past the initial creation of the universe. How many more of these are you willing to go? I appreciate the certainty that Neil deGrasse Tyson comes into this with, but if you can't explain these things over and over again, and you end up, and and remember all the way back in the first episode, what did we say? From a religious standpoint, it was wrong for people of faith to lean on blind faith. Blind faith is bad. That's wrong. But so is leaning on blind luck. And the amount of luck that we're going to have to lean on to keep naturalism going will blow you away. So I ask the question as we look at this, how much is too much? The one item that we're going to look at this week, Roger Penrose in looking at something called the original phase space volume. It's also known as this low entropy condition that existed shortly after the creation of the universe. Penrose has calculated that this one individual item is fine-tuned to the level of 10 billion multiplied by itself 123 times. It's 10 to the 10th power to the 123rd power. Now to put that into perspective, 10 to the 80th power, that was the value that we picked for what we were going to say naturalism was going to have to pony up to get the universe off off the starting line. And that number was not picked at random. That's the number of atoms, the the number of atoms within the universe. So if we, if we looked at that, I felt like that was a fair number because we were talking about the creation of the universe. And so naturalism ought to have to answer up for the universe that got created. And so we assigned to it a value of 10 to the 80th power, Now that's a remarkably unlikely number. So to put that into perspective, remember, if we go back to the lottery, the odds of winning the lottery, remember it's one in 292 million. Now, state it into a comparable number. It's 3.42 times 10 to the eighth power. All right, 10 to the 8th, big number. I mean, we, none of us would live our lives based on the lottery, all right? No one's going to quit their job and say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to live off of my lottery winnings. That's not going to happen. You might win the lottery and then quit your job, but again, you're not going to do that in reverse order. Nobody is quitting their job and saying, I'm going to win, I'm going to live based on the lottery. Okay, that's 10 to the 8th power. 10 to the 80th power is the number of atoms in the known universe, okay? We're talking about something that dwarfs both of those. Something that dwarfs those so much that you couldn't even begin to express the number it's so big. You couldn't begin to write the number down, I should say, because it's so big. The number that Penrose calculated, and again, Roger Penrose, not a Christian. This is not a Christian argument, one item, 10 to the 10th power to the 123rd power. Or if you, if you squish that down a little bit, 10 billion to the 123rd power. 10 billion multiplied by, to itself 123 times. If you ask the question, what are the odds of that one thing happening? Now, you've got one of two choices here you either step back and say, the odds of that happening are so astronomically small, it's not even worth talking about. There's no way. You don't even go down that path. Or you grab a hold of naturalism and the one answer naturalism has got is if you just have enough chances, yes, it's remarkably unlikely. I would argue it is the scientific definition. It's the mathematical definition of impossible. In terms of the math but 10 billion multiplied by itself 123 times isn't just unlikely it's impossible but naturalism is going to have to say if you just have enough chances eventually it will happen and we are the lucky universe where it happened in this is going to get to the multiverse in a couple of weeks i know i keep saying that i promise we will get there this is going to get to the multiverse in a couple weeks But to get around this, naturalism is going to have to basically change the odds. Naturalism is going to have to basically try to sneak infinity back in to get past the odds that are so bad you can't even go near it. I'm not saying this one should be enough for you. I understand if fine-tuning isn't, kind of. For me, I'm a numbers guy, so this one for me is a deal-breaker. But this is going to be the second miracle that's going to be necessary. And next week, we're going to talk a lot more about how big of a miracle this is. How many items we're talking about. Because it's not just this one item that Penrose has discovered. It's not just the one last week that Fred Hoyle has discovered. It's dozens of things. The fingerprint of intelligence is clearly visible here. And no amount of time is going to fix this. You cannot give science more time to come up with an answer to this. It was science that discovered it. It was scientists who discovered it. When we look at this question of the beginning of the universe and what we call the Big Bang, when we look at this question of fine-tuning, we somehow now all of a sudden want to say, well, but science will figure that out. And we suddenly seem to forget. But it's the scientific discoveries of the last century that have discovered these items. And they're not moving in a direction of getting us further away from God. They're bringing us closer to God every day. So what I'm asking for this week is take a step back. What's the number? How big does the number have to be? Because if there's a number out there, and there ought to be, there ought to be a number at which point we all look at each other and go, all right, really, I I wouldn't live my life that way, and I'm certainly not going to bet eternity on a number that big. Then this is the test. This is the, this is the item where we all hit that point, because mathematically, we're going to number we're, we're going to blow this out of the water mathematically. The question is going to be, is there any point in time where you would step back and say, "You know what? Yeah, I, that does require an explanation, and just saying luck is not going to be enough to do it?" Ask yourself what that number is. Where is it that we reach this point? Because if the beginning of the universe isn't it, and the, the structure and foundation of the universe and fine-tuning isn't it, and what we're going to see going down the road as we look at the beginnings of the universe and how the universe came together and the beginnings of life, the, our little solar system, and all the things that we see, the creation of this planet, the creation of our moon, all of the things that are coming, and not just the, the initial formation of life, but the sudden appearance of life in the fossil record, life going from very simple to extremely complex like that, all of the things that we see around us. If naturalism can't explain any of them, but naturalism does a pretty good job of explaining different dog breeds, or different, if you go back to Darwin, my goodness, the man was obsessed with pigeons and a patch of dirt in his backyard. If that's all naturalism's got, What is it again that Neil deGrasse Tyson is so confident in? Because if you can't put together basic explanations for the most critical junctures in this journey of how we went from nothing to where we are today, then I'm not sure I understand you demanding scientists become atheists or else. That seems a little odd to me. So, we're going to stop there this week. Next week we'll jump more into this question, and we're going to really sink our teeth into this question of fine-tuning, and how many items there are and what the math is that we're talking about. And once we get done looking at that, then I promise we're going to get to the multiverse here in the next few weeks. I think it'll be the right time when we do. I want to thank you for joining us this week. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, I hope you'll hit the like and subscribe button. You can also find us on our website at prooftograce.com. You can reach out to us via email at prooftograce at yahoo.com. And you can find our podcast at Spotify and iTunes. And I hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you so much for being with us, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye.